the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Professor Brian L. Keeley. Hello and welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. Here in Auckland, New Zealand, I'm Josh Edison and with us as usual from Los Angeles, it's Professor of Philosophy and Gold Medalist at the 1997 Autumn Olympics, uh, Brian L. Keeley. How are you, Brian? Oh, you- you just keep embarrassing me with that mm. uh, that little factoid there, Josh. Well, but, uh, why would you keep I, it to The only yourself? reason I won is that literally I tripped everybody else that was in it, and that's, you know, but well, we, that, we try not to speak of that. I thought that was part of the rules. But anyway, m- m- maybe the less said the better. Now, we have a uh, Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre episode for you this week, and uh, we're returning to that to that wacky M. Dentith who, if you recall from the last time we spoke, uh, someone someone I went to university with many, many, many years ago, but who has since yes. gone on to become a bit of an influential figure. Yeah, and as I mentioned, I had met him at that conference in Miami a couple of years back. Uh, they, uh, they they had some interesting things to say, but uh, have not really had a chance to interact with them very much mm. since then. Other than reading the papers, it was an interesting paper. I'm glad mm. we... I'm glad we were able to read it, and now we can uh, talk about it, uh, and 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 now we can make it public because you know we've been keeping it a secret that we had read it uh, for quite a while now, oh, yes. and, and now we can we can make that public. Mm. Yes, so this paper is one that Em did with Martin Orr, who uh, has been spoken about a bit on this podcast as well, uh, back in 2017, and the name of it is Secrecy and Conspiracy. So this is I mean going right back to the absolute genesis of this podcast, the the very first episode of it, we talked about what the definition of a conspiracy and one of the one of the key three things is that it involves secrecy. Um, but this paper takes a bit of a closer look at that um, and to say exactly what do we mean? Because we have seen, of course, we've seen papers in the past where people have argued. In some, in the most extreme cases, that if you ever know about a conspiracy, it's not really a conspiracy because it's not secret anymore, which um, is kind of one end of it. But this one um, takes a takes a, a relatively detailed look, I guess, at just this one uh, secrecy conspiracy of the whole definition. Yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting that uh, well, it's well, first of all, it's interesting that. Uh, Martin Orr, the co-author, is not mm. a philosopher. Uh, is as we've talked about before on the podcast. Uh, I believe uh, we've interviewed him on the podcast before, but as a as a as a sociologist, yeah, it's, which is a slightly different you know take on things, but also maybe particularly appropriate for thinking about terms of secrecy because you know there there are all sorts of social reasons for having uh, keeping secrets and and uh, and also a lot of the the analysis has to do with the. Or, you know, structure of organizations and such. So it, and think, there's a lot of ways in which having a sociologist, uh, you know, give their opinion and kind of weighing in on on different mm. elements of conspiracy theories. Uh, it was, you know, uh, good on good on him that they brought in a sociologist yes. for this this discussion. Yes. Well, the one paper we looked at of by Martin and Jenna Husting. Um, was a bit of a, a bit of an eye opener for me, an actual sociology paper where you can like do research and 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 appeal to empirical data. I was like, is that allowed? Are we are we allowed to talk about the real world when we're doing this sort of thing? But yes, yeah, so it's especially a good source of sort of real world examples all the way through this paper. Yes, yes. But so the paper begins with an abstract which reads. 
In the literature on conspiracy theories, the least contentious part of the academic discourse would appear to be what we mean by a conspiracy, a secretive plot between two or more people towards some end. Yet what exactly is the connection between something being a conspiracy and it being secret? Is it possible to conspire without also engaging in secretive behaviour? To dissect the role of secrecy in conspiracies, and thus contribute to the larger debate on the epistemology of conspiracy theories, we define the concepts of conspiracy, conspirator, and secret, and argue that while conspirators might typically be thought to commit to keeping secrets once their conspiracy is underway, the idea that conspiracies are necessarily secretive to start with is not as obvious as previously thought. So, yeah, and I thought it was interesting too that uh, there were some there were some emphases there in the abstract. Mm. It's uh, they argue that while conspirators might typically be thought of thought to commit conspiracy theories once their conspiracy is underway, the idea of a conspiracy conspiracies are necessarily secretive is not uh, to start is not as obvious as previously thought. Right, so they're mm. uh, they're they're playing around with it's you know. You know, some of these things seem reasonable, but you know how reasonable are they? Mm. Yes, and drawing distinctions straight away from different mm. time frames in the conspiracy. Uh, but so it moves to the introduction, uh, in which they say our purpose in this paper is not to rehash the debate as to whether belief in conspiracy theories is rational or irrational. Rather, we are interested in what counts as conspiratorial. What is the domain of these things we call conspiracies? Specifically, we're interested in the role of secrecy in conspiratorial activity, and mm -hmm. they make it fairly clear from the start that they're using the very, the very much non-pejorative definition of conspiracy theory with as little baggage as possible. I think they just have it as uh, any explanation of an event which cites a conspiracy as a salient cause. And um, the introduction has a bit of a discussion around why conspiracy theories and conspiracies carry this extra baggage, and that's possibly what you're talking about with the, the sociologist influence there, being able to give a bit of... Um, mm -hmm motivation around it. But it then goes on to point out that there's surprisingly little in the literature defining secrets or secrecy. Um, and so this paper suggests the, def the definition that um, person S1 keeps P, for proposition I guess, secret from S2, if and only if S1 believes S2 does not know P, and S1 intends to keep S2 from becoming aware of P. And so obviously this one of the one of the upshots of this definition is that you can keep a secret from someone without conspiring uh, simply if you're acting mm -hmm. alone. Um, conspiracy it's it's not enough to be keeping a secret to be conspiring. There are other conditions there. Yeah, this has always had that funny uh, you know that it's always been a one funny thing about thinking about conspiracy theories is this idea that they have to be plural, mm. right that they have to involve multiple people. Right, the idea that you know, if Lee Harvey Oswald did it by himself, as the official story says, then technically it's not a conspiracy because it, by all accounts, on the official story, you know, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't even you know tell his wife that he was uh, thinking about assassinating the president. And it's kind of it's always been one of those kind of odd things that you know, like, well, if, only, if it's only one person involved, uh, then it is not a conspiracy. Uh, in the same sort of way that uh, you know a sec a secret which is kept to just one person. If I just simply decide, or I know something myself, maybe it's often something it's something I know about myself, right? That I you know that I know that I you know all these years, Josh, you know, of us doing this podcast secretly, I just hate your beard, mm -hmm. right? And I've I've never told you 
I've I've let on that I liked your beard the whole time, but I really it just I just think it really looks bad on you, and 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 I I just loathe it. Right, it, that it's not really a you know a conspiratorial secret if I keep it to myself, mm. and and it's odd that you know secrets don't, don't require it that it be plural, right? That can still be a secret, but in order for it to be a conspiracy theory, I have to tell somebody else. Like I have to tell you know your partner and say you know don't you hate Josh's beard too? And they say yes, but oh we can never tell him. Uh, you know it would it would really disappoint him. Uh, so okay. Now we're conspiring, right? Because we're keeping the secret amongst ourselves. But as long as we keep it singularly, it's not technically a conspiracy. Uh, although that does seem it know, does, a lot yeah. in a lot of cases. Yeah, it, it, it's the idea that a person could be doing the same things, having the same plans, and yet just mm. because they haven't mentioned it to someone else, it is or it isn't. Um, True fact, I haven't been without a beard since 2007. When I shaved it for a wedding, I took one look in the mirror, said, mm, no. And Mike took one look at my wife, and she said, mm, no. Grew it back, never changed it. But anyway. And, and for the record, that was a oh, of course, of course. I've always thought the beard looked quite I'm nice. A, on I'm you, a so, big fan oh. of beards in, in general, yours yours yes. included. Anyway, uh, so this, this um, introductory section wraps up. Uh, our contention is that whilst much conspiratorial activity involves secrecy, the nature of secrecy and conspiratorial activity is much more complex than is currently acknowledged in the literature. When two or more people plot towards some end, there is the question of not just must we keep our actions secret, but also from whom must our actions be kept secret? Our argument is that when these two questions are considered carefully, it turns out that secrecy, at least as it is generally understood, is not always necessary for conspiracy. So that brings us into section two. So what is a conspiracy? And this is a bit of definitional stuff that we've talked about many times before, but they, they use um, the example of cover-up conspiracies, and um, that, which can come in two varieties. You can either be covering up a conspiracy in process or dis covering up the discovery, partial or whole, of a conspiracy by someone else. And I think that the... the point that I took out of this one was the idea that um, intent matters and that there's a difference between deliberately misleading someone and simply not advertising that maybe you've done something wrong or done something foolish. Um, so they say, a cover-up based upon members of the public failing or not knowing to ask the right questions is still a conspiracy and a lie by omission is after all still a lie. Think of it this way, if no one knows what you're up to, no one knows what questions they should be asking to uncover your potential misdeeds. Indeed, in a relatively closed society, this is precisely how governmental and corporate agencies get away with conspiring. No, they will surely say, we weren't covering that up, you just didn't ask about it. Yeah, and it's interesting, they bring up the example of the American, the, this American case of FOIA, right, the Freedom of mm. Information Act, uh, which is, you know, this kind of Interesting thing. I'd actually be curious to know whether there's anything equivalent in uh, the New Zealand context of can can you know on you know, obviously every country has has official secrets in the sense that there are things that are classified that are considered uh, you know uh, of national security interest and therefore this will not be revealed even if we are asked. You know we will neither confirm nor deny the you know existence of this agency. But in the states, we have this this idea of FOIA, FOIA, which is you know if if it's not a classified document, and it is requested, uh, then 
you know, the agency is supposed to cough it mm. up uh, if there is no, you know, good reason for keeping it secret. Uh, and which is kind of a unique thing that was developed actually as a result of conspiracies in the 1960s. Uh, it, you know, the FOIA law was passed in the early 1970s, but it's it's kind of a uniquely American thing. But as this points to, is this idea that you can only you can't go on fishing expeditions, mm. right? You, you have can't to know what you're asking uh, you, for. You can't yeah. go in and ask for all files to do with uh, anything secret. Uh, no, you have to ask about a very specific thing, and uh, and that's. And that's why there's you know there's famous cases in the history of, of American journalism where something got published uh, as part or got released as part of a report and it might make reference to a you know, Operation Jenga and then as soon as you've got a name and it's like it's not explained then you can let me contact this agency and ask for all documents associated with Operation Jenga this name that I've just discovered and then legally they're supposed to then. Okay, you've discovered that there is this thing with this name. Now we are compelled to uh, release it to you. Uh, but until you even have a name, to, you know, a question to ask with some uh, some specificity, then it can remain a secret. Yes, we have the Official Information Act here in New Zealand, which is similar. I don't know exactly how it works. I, you only ever really hear about it when uh, someone is trying to find something out via the Official Information Act and whichever government department is responsible is sort of being obstructive or dragging their feet or, or they'll someone will point out that, you know, this this person, this critic of the government has taken months and months to get anything out of the information, Official Information Act, whereas this person who's sort of pro the government is able to get their responses instantly and so on. But I don't know exactly um, the, the, the legal ins and outs. But at any rate, this, this moves uh, the paper on to section three, who are the conspirators, uh, which starts... Does everyone in a conspiracy have to be in the know, or are some members of the conspiracy going to turn out to be dupes or patsies? For example, if you run your conspiracy from the corporate office, does the person who delivers your coffee halfway through the meeting where you decide to falsely claim tax credits count as a conspirator? Is the person who couriers the objectionable material to the branch office in on it, or are they just an accessory? Who counts as a conspirator versus who is an accessory might seem like a trite question, but it speaks to an interesting characteristic of conspiratorial activity, just who knows exactly what is going on. As it turns out, being in a conspiracy means sometimes being part of a very peculiar kind of secret. And so they talk about the idea of um, uh, hierarchical organisations. Um, uh, being in a hierarchical organisation can mean that not everyone acting to forward a conspiracy needs to actually know the details of the conspiracy or even needs to know that they're involved in a conspiracy. They might just be doing what they're told, which they think is a perfectly benign activity, but they're being told to do that at the behest of, of someone else who actually knows that they have um, uh, uh, more malevolent motives. And so we get into the old assassination of Julius Caesar, which I know is a, a favorite example of Eames. Of, um... Yes, yes. Actually, this actually reminds me of, uh, what was it? It's a scene in one of the Kevin Smith movies, either either Clerk, one of the Clerks movies, either Clerks 1 or 2, but there was that whole discussion about uh, the oh, Death the Star. the contractors on the Death Star, all... yeah. 
yes, the contractors on the Death Star, and did they know, you know, they, they were collateral damage. And then there's the contractor who you know, happens to be there while they're having the conversation. It's, oh, you know, contractors know what they're doing. And, you know, if, if you're working for a mob boss and, you know, you know that you're working for a mob boss. And so therefore you, you have some degree of culpability. I mean, it's kind of playing around with some mm. of these same ideas of, you know, why, why assume necessarily that the person delivering the coffee doesn't know about the conspiracy and is like, yeah, this is part of my bonus is that, you know, if we can, if we can cheat on the taxes, then I'm going to get a bigger bonus next year. You know, that, you know, if, if anybody knows about what's going on conspiratorial in a company, it really is the person delivering the, you know, the tea and the, and the, and the staff members and so forth. Uh, you know, you could kind of yeah. turn, turn yeah. this kind of point on its head and suggest that even in hierarchical societies uh, or hierarchical, hierarchical organizations, we shouldn't necessarily assume that people low down in the hierarchy are necessarily uninvolved or at least unknowledgeable of the of the conspiracy. They they might very well be and 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 may well be happy to keep the conspiracy. Yeah. Yes, the so the, you also have the um, the assassination of Julius Caesar example is a a, a point where you can uh, it's an example of um, a conspiracy where some members of the conspiracy can hide their true goals from the others. So some of the conspirators thought that they were going to be uh, you know, giving, giving power back to the people, whereas the, the likes of Marcus Brutus was like, actually, this is, this is to make me emperor. We're not um, you know, to, to, to restore the Republic. Mm-hmm. And so it gets into the, the, at this point, um, they introduce the idea, which is something that, come, that you see people talk about a bit whenever conspiracy theories are mentioned, the idea that over a certain size, conspiracies become more and more unlikely. Um, there was that paper by uh, Dr. Grimes, I forget his first name. Yes. That was, that, that was the one that yes. caught a lot of people's attention where he tried to sort of give a mathematical formula of exactly how long you can expect mm. a conspiracy to remain secret given a, a certain size of it. Um, but this paper argues it's, it's, it's more, more nuanced than just straight a, a numbers game. Um, so they say they say yeah the idea between a, a monolithic and a diverse conspiracy is the is the distinction. Yeah, and I'm curious. It's um, I mean, I thought that was one of the interesting things because so one of the interesting things that this paper brings up and really pushes on, yeah, because there's a way in which my own work has been kind of lumped in with Grimes, whereas I, you know, in my original paper, I give a kind of a qualitative account that says something like. You know, the the larger conspiracy gets, the you know, just by just by sheer probability, the larger larger number of people involved in conspiracy, the more likely that somebody is going to either screw up or spill the beans or be, you know, take take the incentive to be the whistleblower and so forth. And then Grimes's paper is a kind of quantitative version of the same kind of point that I'm making uh, and tries to spell it out in, in ways that I find a little uh, so many assumptions have to be made in order to, for the, the the numbers to work. Uh, I've always found that paper uh, problematic. But then the move that's made by um, M and uh, Marty here is to say, again, it's not just sh- even if it's numbers, it's not sheer numbers, mm. right? That, that it has to be the right kind of numbers, right? There has to be a, a degree of diversity. And it, it actually, I don't think they cite it. But there's a similar move that goes on in the philosophy of science about the kinds of evidence. You know, when you're when you're trying to confirm your theory or disconfirm your theory, when you're building up evidence that is supposed to be in in on behalf of your of your theory, 
you know, the more evidence, the better, of course, right? It's like that's mm-hmm. uh, that is you know that makes sense that you know the more evidence you have on behalf of your theory, the better you should feel about your theory. But of course, it's not just the more evidence; it has to be diverse evidence, right? So multiple, you know, a particular paper coming out that supports your theory that is is additional evidence. 15 copies of that exact same paper mm. don't constitute additional evidence because that's not diverse evidence, right? It's got to be 15 different papers, and even better, 15 papers by 15 different labs, right? 15 papers by a single lab you know, would be evidence mm. better than copies of the same paper. But the, yeah, so there's this notion that it, within the philosophy of science that you know, evidence and, as justification needs to be diverse by some metric, right? And then, then the deba- debate comes like, well, what kind of diversity is required, right? You know, does it need to be different people? Does it need to be different points? Probably yes on all of those things. And the kind of the, 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 the mirror that they're doing here is that yes, you know, multiple people being involved, you know, that there would be more people involved means that, okay, it's more likely that your conspiracy would be uncovered. But like, for instance, you know, one of the reasons why uh, the most successful conspiracies are those carried out by organized crime is because often those people are united either by, uh, you know, family connections, right? They're all members of the same family, uh, or maybe they have an ethnic connection, right? They're all, you know, they're all from the same village in Italy, or they can draw their, their you know, they draw their same connection to a, uh, you know, a, a, a district of, of, uh, the former Soviet Union, right? Such that there's, but the point of that is like, oh yeah, there's significantly less diversity in goals, in uh, values, and so forth. That they all kind of see themselves as having a connection that goes beyond uh, merely, uh, you know, monetary advantage. As they as they point out in the paper, right, that a conspiracy theory that involves a variety of different organizations, uh, that's the kind of, you know diversity that should undermine belief in a conspiracy theory. Whereas if you find out that no, 15 people are involved, but there are 15 different members, you know, brothers and nephews of the same family, yeah, maybe they're going to be better at keeping a secret because they're much more tightly connected. And I think that's a really nice point that they make in this paper. Yeah, so they go to um, look into this in some detail in the next section, which is monolithic and diverse conspiracies. Um, So they start by comparing the Volkswagen emissions scandal as an example of a monolithic conspiracy with the 9-11 truth conspiracy theories, the the idea that the, the towers, twin towers, were felled by a controlled demolition and so on. Um, and so the argument there is that Volkswagen, it, it's, it's confined to within a single company. Everybody involved in it at least had the motivation of wanting their company to make more money. And I mean, and, and there, was, there was always a lot of talk with the Volkswagen stuff about that, that, that earlier point about who actually knew what. Were, were these technicians just doing what they were told? Or did they actually know that they were really fudging the rules? And that there, there was, you know, did, was, it, was it all at the top or was it at all levels of the company? But at any rate, it was all within a single company. Whereas when you get to the 9-11 truth conspiracy theories, that requires lots of groups working towards the same goal with no no common governance, as they put it. Um, 
His putative claim of conspiracy involves a set of diverse actors, diverse in the sense that, unless you believe in some hidden hand government like the New World Order or the Illuminati, the various agents the conspiracy theory alleges were responsible belong to groups with no shared governance, let alone any central mechanism of control. And so the idea there is that, yeah, but in a situation like that, you could think that as, as it gets larger, it's much more likely for the conspiracy theory to be found out. But when you've got a monolithic case such as uh, Volkswagen, adding more people to it doesn't necessarily make it more likely to be found out. Um, as they, 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 yeah, yeah. It's, it's all relative. They say monolithic conspiracy theory is relatively easier to keep concealed. But then, of course, there is the, the point which that as a conspiracy gets larger, it's, it becomes more likely to become more diverse, just you know, more, more people gives you more options for diversity. Actually, I've never thought of this before, but this is actually a point in favor of kind of David Icke's theories of the lizard people. I mean, what what more lack of diversity could you have than it's an alien species of lizard mm. people who have their own goal for, you know, conquering uh, this planet of earthlings, right? It's like they definitely have a, you know, a, uh, a unity of, of purpose uh, and uh, in a way that, you know, they're the ultimate mafia family, right? They're, they're the mm. alien species from another planet. So, yeah, of course they're going to be able to keep a secret is, you know, they, they're, they're, they, they don't even, they're, they're not even human, mm. right? They're, and they see us as, as mere cattle to be uh, taken care of, whereas they are the, you know, the, the, you know, they've, they're carrying out their secret plan that they set up well before they journeyed to this planet and, Actually, I've never, other than dominating us, what exactly does David Icke say? I don't. They're not stealing our they, water, I, are so, they? Sometimes they eat us or, or like drink well, our blood right, or whatever. Food. But I, uh, no, I was never quite clear on exactly the original, what they're getting out of it. I mean, it's always clear to me that David Icke is stealing this from Thomas Pynchon's V. And mm. I, I think in V, they wanted our water yeah, or something, something like, like that. that. So. Yeah. Or maybe now I'm confusing that with the man who fell to earth because that was definitely. Water related. I think they both. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's 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 right that like they say, believing in a sort of a new world order Illuminati, alien shapeshifter thing, kind of makes it. I don't know. Almost almost stronger if you're saying that 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 all these people that appear to be diverse are actually all part of the same. Actually, what it reminds me of is the John Wick movies, where by by the time you get to the mm. third one, it seems about half the population of the planet is employed by this criminal, this shadowy criminal organization that nobody knows about, but everyone's in yes, on it. Yes. Or, or or the or Blade, mm. you know, the, the comic book and movies where they're vampires, right? That they, they sh again, they share this commonality and therefore are able to carry out a secret because they literally will die if the secret gets out mm. uh, and the conspiracy is revealed. Yeah, you know. so at this point, they do actually mention the Grimes paper um, in this section, uh, but point out that it, it doesn't distinguish between the size of conspiracy versus its organizational structure, um, which yes. makes the point there. Uh, but so mm -hmm. that... that moves on to section five, which is a peculiar kind of secrecy, pointing out that a conspiratorial secret, to, to begin with, right, right, as they say, from the outset, it's an imperfect secret, because the only, the only way for a secret to be a hundred percent secret is if it stays in your head and nowhere else. If, by definition, a conspiracy means the secret is being shared with more than one person, so it's not a hundred, hundred percent secret. But then, the, so then it becomes more complicated because, as they say, 
Now, once at least two people have agreed to act in concert and have subsequently agreed to keep their arrangement a secret, several questions arise. One, from whom should the secret be kept? Two, then from whom should this secret not be kept? And three, finally, after the goal of the conspirators has been achieved, can the conspiracy be revealed or must some aspects remain secret? And that's something that's come up a bunch of times. You know, certain conspiracies they want you to know about, you know, your various terrorist attacks and so on, they want to be able to claim um, uh, responsibility for it afterwards. And yet other ones, maybe, you know, criminal ones in particular, they'd probably prefer that nobody ever finds out about it and they get away scot-free. Yeah, and I think that was, I mean, when I think back to my own work, it's, you know, so when I define conspiracy theories, I did, I, I said that secrecy was one of those kind of features that often comes along with it, but it was not definitive uh, that, you know, that, that, you know, it's no surprise that conspiracies often are secret, but that isn't a necessary condition. Uh, but one of the reasons I thought secrecy was important was that secrecy was required exactly because the people that are carrying out the conspiracy is are not all powerful right that they need to keep it secret because if the secret got out then we would stop them mm. right we being you know the good people who you know or maybe people even in league with the conspiracy theorists right is that part of what motivates the conspiracy theorists is because they think some good can come of revealing the secret and getting people to see that this you know this conspiracy is underfoot, and and in particular those were the kinds of conspiracies that I was that I was interested in, or the ones that were was the were the information to get out, were the secret to be revealed, then the conspiracy would be stopped, right, and and then the goals of the conspiracy would fail to obtain. Uh, in the case of a conspiracy, for instance, to assassinate somebody, well, once they're dead, then there's no taking it back, mm. right, so. You know that it gets out after the fact is well. You're you know something bad could happen as a result of that. Maybe some other goal of the conspiracy, like my not going to jail, might be uh, violated. But if if the you know the goal of the conspiracy is that person be dead, okay, I've killed them. Now I don't need to talk about it anymore. Uh, I or I can talk about it because you know it, it's 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 done. The deed is done. But for me, the interesting conspiracy theories, the ongoing conspiracies are the ones where you need to keep it secret because the very fact of it being revealed, uh, we do, once it was revealed and believed, then we are powerless to, to, to make the conspiracy, the thing that we wanted to do it conspiratorially, um, mm. you know, becomes no, no longer problematic, which was interesting with respect to some of the stuff that we'll get into later about conspiracies that don't require secrecy. Mm. Uh, you know, conspiracies where we're going to do this to you and you're so powerless, we can actually tell you in advance yeah. <laughs> that we're going to do it to you and we don't need to be secret about it at all. Yeah. Um, you know, but we, you know, we're, we're a powerful enough group of conspirators that we don't need secrecy. The secrecy is often, I think, a, a sign of, of weakness, yeah. right? That if, that the fact that you need a conspiracy to get your conspiracy theory to go uh, is a function of the fact that you, it were it to be public, we wouldn't be able to make it go. We we lack that kind of power. Mm. They came a couple of interesting article, uh, examples rather in this section. One was Ashley Madison, which was a blast from the past. I'd forgotten about that one. <laughs> Ashley Madison, which, if, yes. if you recall, was a sort of a, a website, a service for people looking to cheat on their partners. It was it was very specifically like a dating network, but for people who were 
quite open about the fact that I'm involved with someone else and I want to cheat on them. Uh, so obviously, there's... as they say, life is mm. short. Have an affair. Was there? I mean, when 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 that's your uh, your selling line, when that's your your brand motto, life is short. Have an affair. It's like okay, that's... you're just. You're saying the quiet part yeah. out loud, aren't you? But it was interesting for the, the different sort of levels of who was conspiring on whom and what was being kept from from uh, what watch other groups. Because obviously, if you're talking about cheating on someone, you, you, you there is an element of conspiracy there. You want to keep that secret from your partner. But then there was a whole lot of dodginess with the site itself. Weird, strangely enough, a site all about adultery turned out to be um, not entirely on the level. There was a, a bunch of stuff around how if you... Um, first of all, the, it was kind of an open secret, and we'll get into open secrets in a minute, that there were a whole lot of fake female accounts on there designed to entice men onto this network. Uh, but then there was other stuff about how if you applied to have your... Um, uh, your account deleted, they weren't actually deleting it properly. And so there was uh -huh. there was sort of conspiracies by these would-be adulterers to commit adultery, but then there was conspiracy by the company to defraud um, its customers. Um, and in the other case they talked about was op uh, the CIA's Operation Midnight Climax, which was part of MKUltra uh -huh. back when the CIA was basically just kind of slipping people acid to see what would happen was the impression I got from it. But um, in this And you have to admit, that's one of the best-named operations of all oh, time. Yes. I mean, to, to have an operation involving prostitutes uh, uh, and slipping people LSD, to have it be called Operation Midnight Climax. Yeah. Uh, it's like, okay, that's, that's again, saying the, the, uh, the quiet part out yeah. loud, but... Uh, Maybe not quite as well. Yeah, but again, you have these multiple levels of secrecy. You have so, so the, the idea was was the CIA was getting prostitutes to slip LSD to their johns. Um, so you've got the the fact that um, you've got the conspiracy of, of solicitation of prostitution and possibly adultery again, and then at the same time, the prostitute is conspiring with the CIA, although she may not have even known that either. And the CIA is conspiring to test what happens when you give these mind-altering drugs to people. So you can see that when you start actually looking about who is keeping what secret from whom, um, the notion that the, the simple idea that a conspiracy must be secret gets a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. There are secrets within yeah. secrets. So we get to the, the section six, the cover-up uncovered. Um, which which sort of basically brings up a bunch of interesting interesting sort of wrinkles. Um, they 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 address the claim that once a conspiracy has been uncovered and is thus no longer secret, it's no longer a conspiracy. But um, that one that, that that's something we've seen problems with that in the past. Um, to say that just because it's found out, especially in cases where the people want it to be found out. To say that it's no longer a conspiracy doesn't make a lot of sense, but they, they talk about the, the things you we just mentioned before, the idea of open secrets, where everybody knows that um, something something untoward is going on, maybe don't know the exact details, and they talk about the idea of Stalin's Russia or Cold War East Germany, where everybody knows that the state could could be conspiring against them, but they don't know the details. Maybe not exactly. Maybe that you know. Maybe you don't know that the secret service is, is coming to knock on your door soon. But you know it could happen. Um, so and so everybody knows, and yet this is still a kind of conspiracy that of the state against its people. So they say 
This kind of response deserves careful consideration precisely because it shows that when we talk about secrecy, we're talking about a multivariate property. Citizens of the USSR and the GDR knew what their respective governments were doing, at least to some extent. These activities were open secrets. However, they may not have known the actual detailed policy behind these activities or the motivations of those who implemented them. In that restricted aspect, the conspirators were holding back some of their hand. However, it's fair to say that these citizens knew enough to make broadly accurate claims about the conspiratorial nature of their societies. It turns out you can be conspired against and know something about it. Sometimes a conspiracy will be so big that everyone knows, yet no one seemingly can do anything about it, which I think is to the point that um, you brought up, uh, brought up just before. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, and this goes back to another thing that, that, that particularly I think M made a point of early in the paper, notes that, you know, we know there's a small but growing literature on the philosophy of conspiracy theories, but noted as, as part of the opening of this paper that there's been relatively little philosophical work on secrecy. And I think this particular section really points to the oddness of that, right? The, I mean, the entire, I mean, we all are familiar with the concept of an open secret, right? And, and the, the kinds of scenarios being described in this section, you know, the, the thing which is secret, but that everybody knows, I mean, that is just bizarre yeah. as a concept, right? And the idea that philosophers have never really kind of tried to grapple with that of like, that sounds like an oxymoron, uh, you know, a, an open secret, yet it's clearly a thing. To what extent, I mean, I really wonder whether, I mean, in the Anglo-American tradition, secrecy is not, uh, I mean, I think Emma's right. There, there hasn't been a lot of work. There, there's a reference to Cicilla Bach's uh, work on secrets, which is, pretty much the only thing I can think of off the top of my head that I'm familiar with. It's a philosophical work that deals with secrets. But now I'm very curious to know whether like, you know, in the former Soviet Union, in the former Eastern European diaspora or the, the area that was under the control of the Soviets during uh, the Cold War, who were experiencing exactly these kind of open secrets in East Germany and, and so forth, has there not been philosophical engagement with this idea of like what constitutes secrecy in that kind of a context? Because that is, you know, very strange as, as an idea where you, you, you know quite a lot and you're justified in knowing quite a lot. But on the other hand, I mean, yeah, there, there's this distinction between secrecy, which is as something which is either known or not known, but then there's also this element of secrecy as something which is spoken about mm. and not known. And, you know, the idea that part of being a secret is not just that it's not known, but it's also not talked about and confirmed, you know, where everybody, I mean, and, and I've heard similar things about, you know, what did the, the people of the German villages near to uh, concentration camps in Poland and in Germany and other places, right? What did they know? You know, did they know that Jews were being killed and that the Holocaust was under uh, underway, or was it that they simply knew that something bad was happening, mm. something that would be deeply embarrassing to me as a you know a, a political member of of a, a politi particular political order? I and, and I'm and in some sense I don't want to know exactly because. I think it's not going to be, you know, there's some motivated reasoning going mm. on here of like, I don't really want to know the details. But again, it kind of, you know, there are these stories that suggest that it's kind of an open secret where maybe they didn't know the details, but in some sense, they knew that something bad was happening, something morally outrageous was happening. 
And exactly for that reason, they didn't want to know more because once you know more, then you feel like maybe I need to act upon this knowledge. So I would, you know, I would rather just continue to do my job and, and continue to live my life without knowing the bad things that are going on in my name. And, but yeah, this, this, you know, the idea that philosophers have not engaged with these kind of aspects of what constitutes a secret and, and what are the boundaries of secrecy. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's just an interesting yeah. fact if it isn't in, in fact the case. And I, and I have no reason to disagree with him and, and Marty about it because I, I can't point to them to any literature where somebody does yeah. talk about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, they also bring up the idea of, of the feigned secret, the uh, cases where mm. something, something that lots of people know, but they all pretend not to know again for that sort of mm. thing, because if, if they were shown to have known about this, um, then, then they'd be a lot more culpable. Um, so they talk about the idea that the, the dossier the, mm. that proved um, Saddam Hussein's regime was developing WMDs, that, that, that pretty much everybody knew that this thing was not just suspicious, but flat out doctored. And yet everybody pretended like they didn't know this and that this was a big secret. Um, I've also, I mean, I've heard of in, in sort of sociological, anthropological stuff, people talking about the idea of the polite fiction, which kind of goes from the other angle of the, uh, the idea, something that everybody knows isn't true, but is all willing to act as though it is true because that makes society function a bit better. And yeah, this has definitely echoes in at least the U.S. political context now of of the the accusation on the part of those. You know, there are those who claim that the last election was stolen uh, from uh, from who should have won the election, and the accusation there is that well, there are people who know that it was a stolen election. But for their own reasons, they are keeping quiet about it and saying that Joe Biden actually did win the election. And the worry is, is that we're going to have the reverse scenario in the next election, where there are going to be plenty of people who are going to know that the election was, in fact, you know, didn't, you know, wasn't stolen. But they feel, nope, nope, we're going to we're going to say it's stolen uh, because it's because if the end result is our guy getting elected or our guy at least ending up in power, whether or not they were elected, then we are going to will be willing to feign that particular lie. Mm. So it's like it's on both sides, yeah. right? It's like as soon as you have these situations, uh, and notice that this all revolves around the fact that we have a secret ballot, mm. right? There is this this, yeah. this core of secrecy to the way in which elections are run uh, in most of the developed Western world, that they are done in secret, which is actually an interestingly new phenomenon. I mean, at least as my understanding of, of American history is that in the early days of the American political experience, that election vote voting was not secret, that you would literally have meetings and they would ask people, you know, how many people vote for George Washington? Raise your hand. That people would declare publicly that they were voting one way or another, which has the advantage of people, you know, there being, you know, open, openness and transparency about it that you could see, you know, I was at the meeting and yes, clearly uh, a majority of people were in favor of this person getting the votes as opposed to another person. But we have secret ballots uh, and with secret ballots then become all the, uh, come all these questions of, well, now we have to trust the people who are doing the counting because in fact, we don't know how individual people did vote. And then there are a lot of good reasons for maintaining a secret ballot 
but it raises the possibilities for conspiracy theories and motivates conspiracy theories in a way that perhaps wouldn't be the case if we did not have a secret ballot, if all ballots were you know, all balloting and all voting were public. Mm. Uh, you know that would, you know, that would change the 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 framework and the dynamics and the epistemology around uh, elections if those things weren't secret the way that they are now. Mm. But not without not 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 also introducing a bunch of other other issues as well. So yeah, it's a yes. difficult a difficult yes. balancing. Yes. Anyway, yes. so this this brings us to the final major section of the paper, which is: Are we capturing the right things with our definition? So so this is we're sort of sort of testing: Is the definition of a conspiracy that's implied by the preceding chapters actually an accurate definition? So they say, we have elected to work with a definition that emphasizes agents working together towards some end with the idea that secrecy is a special condition, one which sometimes sometimes only comes into play once the conspiracy has commenced. As such, when agents collude and then decide, in order to be successful in their plotting, that they must keep selected activity secret from someone, you have a conspiracy. Such activity then runs the gamut from the organisation of a surprise party, having an affair, conspiracy to commit extortion, to political conspiracies. Conspiracies under this view turn out to be common, which is something, uh, an idea that we've seen come up time and time again in, in many papers. Yep. Um, but so they, they basically, then there are a bunch of subsections to this um, section that, that go through a bunch of possible complications or objections. So this actually brings me to one of the things I find very confusing about this paper. It's one of the few things that I find, like most of the paper, I get the point that they're making and I, and I, and I get the sides of the argument that they're dealing with. But maybe, and, and maybe I'm just missing something, but they often come back to this idea that, that of course, well, the question is, as they say in section 7.1, are cover-ups really conspiracies? As if, as if cover-ups weren't conspiracies. I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm really having a hard time getting my head around the idea of something which is a genuine cover-up, but which is not a conspiracy. Because it just seemed to me that almost, maybe not by definition, but it's just like, I'm, I'm just racking my brain to think about a case of something which is indeed a cover-up, but is not a conspiracy in the sort of way that we're talking about in this paper. Because uh, they keep coming mm. back to this question, like, oh, we need to answer this question. Are cons cover-ups conspiracies? And I'm just like, why would you think they're not? Yeah, I, I just didn't. I didn't get I it. I think uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just because they want to deal with the surprise birthday party idea. That the, the idea that some people might um, might might balk at the claim when you say, "Oh, yes, a surprise birthday planning a, a surprise party is a conspiracy," and and some people will sort of go, "What? I thought conspiracies were meant to be evil and nasty." But yeah, the, the section starts. Another objection to the kind of argument we've run here is the claim that cover-ups are not necessarily conspiracies. But I don't, yeah, it doesn't give any detail who's actually making that claim. Mm -hmm. They certainly say that cover-ups will make you suspicious, but suspicious doesn't have to mean sinister. I surprise birthday parties, um, mm -hmm. and they say that um, that, that quote-unquote petty conspiracies, like like a surprise party can still be useful to look at. Um, they say that uh, at the end of the section, they say our interest in political conspiracies and their associated conspiracy theories simply tells us we are motivated by big challenging claims about the world. It does not show that smaller, less influential conspiratorial activity is the kind of things we should rule out of bounds. As such, we need not rule out talk of surprise parties as being conspiratorial, especially if it turns out that the analysis of such events ends up being useful in analyzing the general class of, of theories about conspiracies. So yeah, I don't know, maybe it is just they're trying to 
to hit off people saying, well, under your definition, something as benign as a surprise birthday party would count as a conspiracy. And they just want to say, yes, no, we're okay with that. But yeah, it does a little bit. And, and maybe that's why I, I also have that same reaction. So maybe that's mm. why I'm not seeing the force of this uh, move because, you know, you, you are, you know, the idea that a surprise birthday party doesn't involve lying. I think it quite clearly involves lying. Mm. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's, that's the, uh, the, you know, the other, otherwise the whole thing wouldn't come together. Uh, I, you know, and I don't, I don't think I've ever told you the story on the podcast, but uh, I, somebody once, a group of friends actually during graduate school uh, conspired to throw a, a surprise birthday party for me, which was, which was very, very sweet. But uh, apparently I, uh, because they were so successful, uh, they had a hard time getting me to the party because they conspired first to have me come to a particular pub that I liked. Uh, and then they were supposed to get me from the pub to the actual party location. Uh, I was quite mm. happy to stay at the pub. It's just like, this is this is a really good pub. I could stay here and drink all night. And and they kept coming up with more and more elaborate stories to try to get me to move out of the pub and to go with them to the house where the party was going to happen. Um, so apparently, yeah, it's... Uh, um, I, I'm not a good mm. subject for surprise birthday parties, or at least you have to be very careful because I'm I'm very lazy and and I have inertia and I do not want to. Once I found a place where I'm enjoying drinking and enjoying myself, I don't see the point of going to somebody else's house and, and drinking, continue to drink there. Mm. I don't know. Uh, it didn't didn't work in my case, or it did eventually. Jeez. But yes, they were I'm... after the fact. They were complaining about how difficult it was to get me to leave the damn mm. pub and to actually go to to Chris's house and and, and enjoy the, the party where everybody was waiting for yeah. me. Yeah, so a more, more complex um, example than you might first think. But um, section 7.2 um, looks at the, the, the idea, is secrecy even necessary when conspiring? Could, is it possible, can there be a conspiracy without secrecy? Um, so they, they first point out that the legal definition of conspiracy doesn't require secrecy. If you fail, completely fail to keep a conspiracy secret, that doesn't absolve you of the crime. I assume that's like cases where you try to hire a guy to shoot someone and the guy immediately calls the cops on you or something. You, you'd still committed a conspiracy, even though the secrecy went out the window almost instantly. Um, and then there's also the idea of which comes first, the conspiracy or the secrecy. And so mm -hmm. the idea that, that maybe even for a very, very small amount of time, you might conspire with someone and then realize, okay, we're going to have to keep the secret. But at least for that very first first part of it, which may, may be a matter of minutes or maybe quite longer, you are conspiring and you're not actually explicitly keeping something secret. Uh, yeah, that, and, and I found that, that, again, that was another thing that I found very useful about this paper was that you know, as they point out, there is a legal definition of conspiracy. Uh, and strangely enough, very few philosophers have actually engaged with that of what, you know, how does what the legal definition of conspiracy, how does that match up with what philosophers have been talking about in terms of conspiracy theories and bringing up this idea that, you know, secrecy really has nothing essential to do with the legal definition of conspiracy. Uh, it could be a completely out there and open. And as, as they point out, the various uh, uh, racketeering scams and so forth and protection rackets, uh, they required that, that it not be secret, mm. right? They, they need you to know at least that something bad, you know, you, you've got a, it's a really nice business you've got here. It'd really be a shame if there was a firebomb in the middle of the mm. night, uh, you know, God, that would be a horrible thing. Uh, 
sure you haven't got 20 bucks to give us or 100 bucks to give us a month uh, to cuz cuz that would be such a bad thing to happen mm. uh that you know requires that the person that the communication really involve a lot of non secrecy yeah. um yes so they um actually yeah that, that... and they have the case to cons- the next section is i guess you're about to talk about is this uh uh coming up is the uh, the extortion mm. example that they give. Yes, just before that, they talk about the biscuits and the ghost. Biscuits, one of those lovely yes. trans transatlantic terms that means different things in different places. But here, I think we're talking about biscuits in the New Zealand sense, where, where it's cookies. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the the idea is, they give the example where a parent finds the cookie jar empty, and um, Chad f- f- finds one of their children covered in crumbs and says, oh, you must have must have taken the cookies. The child blames a ghost for the disappearance of the cookies, and the child's sibling says nothing to contradict her. And so they say, in this case, it seems that the siblings are engaged in a conspiracy without overtly agreeing to collude. Um, mm. And so they say, you know, do conspiracies have to be Overt, do you do you have to overtly talk about it with someone to 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 agree that you've entered into this conspiracy together, or can you be all be part of a conspiracy without explicitly ever saying it? Everybody just sort of knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. So they and there's an there's there's an interesting real real world example of this in the United States at least. Famously, or I think it's famously, it may be an urban legend, but. Uh, there is a story that goes around about uh, the, the two major manufacturers of sodas, uh, Pepsi and Coke. So the two major, these are the two major uh, groups that make, uh, two major companies that make these sodas, but there are other competing companies. There's RC Cola and IBC. There's a bunch of things you've probably never heard of outside of the United States, but there are other competitors in the uh, carbonated beverage market. Uh, but the market is dominated by two, uh, Coke and po- Coke and Pepsi, and the story has always been: Do they conspire together, Coke and Pepsi, to keep third parties out, right? To make sure that other parties don't. And the story has always been that they don't, in fact, conspire. They've never actually talked and conspired about these things, but they both simultaneously are happy that the world is split up into just mm. two. So, for example, one of the famous things that happens is in supermarkets, grocery stores, uh, you have end caps, and the end caps uh, can be dominated by like, hey, I, I want all my Pepsi products on the end caps, or I want all Coca-Cola products on the end caps because they'll catch people's eyes and they'll more likely to grab them because they're right there in a nice location. And it turns out that a lot of major grocery chains in the 1970s, particularly 60s and 70s, they would have end cap licenses where they would give it to Coca-Cola. You like, you get to have this end cap. And each, both Coca-Cola and Pepsi asked for 26 weeks and only mm-hmm. 26 weeks for that end cap, which would leave another 26 weeks for their competitor to have it. But would also between the two of them make sure that no other company could squeeze in and have you know RC Cola have the end cap for a couple of weeks. That they never conspired with one another, but they knew they could ask for up to twenty six, and not more than twenty six. And they knew that their competitor would also ask for up to twenty six mm. and not more than twenty six weeks. And therefore, between the two of them, they would make sure that they would you know half the market, a half of a really good market is a really good thing to do. And it also doesn't 
get the uh, anti-competitive uh, you know trust busters mm. that are interested in breaking monopolies it's like no no we don't have a monopoly there are two separate companies here that are competing uh, on an even playing field but it is one of these cases where it's like okay it's not act at least the accusation is there was never active conspiracy they never talked to each other about it at all but in a game theoretic sort of way they knew exactly how much they could ask for knowing that there's an opponent and knowing that there are third, fourth, fifth, and sixth possible components, yeah, we're just going to, the two top ones are going to make it happen such that there aren't going to be any other competitors, even though there was never any literal conspiring in the sense that they ever talked to one another about this possibility. It's, I mean, so game theory, I think, raises some kind of interesting mm. possibilities of how you can get something that has the same effect as there being a conspiracy but without the smoking gun of an actual conspiracy yeah. going on. Yeah, so they finish that section by saying, as it stands, if secrecy is a necessary condition for something being a conspiracy, then we need to understand that acting secretively is a behaviour realisable in multiple ways and is often a kind of necessary afterthought once one starts to conspire. Uh, now that we've hatched this plot, I guess we need to decide who we're going to keep this a secret from, eh? Uh, and so yes, then this this the last one, the last subsection, section seven point four, is a case of conspiracy to commit extortion. So they they sort of look at the objection. Surely all conspiracies are a secret in some sense, um, but they they've already mentioned the, the idea of these open secrets that were talked about in the previous section. And then yes, they get into the idea of a protection racket that. Obviously, the criminals running the protection racket know about it. The, the victims, the, the people paying them protection money, they'll have to know about it. And chances are law enforcement probably knows about it as well, but doesn't want to, doesn't want to, to stir up the hornet's nest by um, disrupting it too much. So this is a, a criminal conspiracy where it seems like everybody isn't actually a secret to anyone um, who, who's involved in it. And then they, they come up with this example of, of Alex, Billy, and Chris. So it goes, Alex and Billy conspire to extort Chris for money because they know that Chris engaged in some dodgy deal recently, which Alex and Billy assure Chris would not like to become publicly known. Alex and Billy suggest to Chris that they know about the deal and also suggest to Chris that Chris give them some money without ever explicitly stating that they will tell anyone about Chris's dodgy deal. Chris simply infers that giving Alex and Billy money will make them go away. As such, Alex and Billy do not seem to be keeping a secret in an overt sense, even though Chris might think that paying them buys their science about what she has done. So it's the idea of, yeah, that, 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 was, that was an interesting deal you were involved in. Just, just, out of, just, just by the way, I could, I could use a new car, you know, my old one's getting a, a little bit, you know, that, that's sort of the, the hinting, implying stuff without ever explicitly saying what you're doing, yet it's kind of understood amongst all parties that that's what's going on. In fact, they further tweak the story to say, um, so that afterwards Alex and Billy tell on Chris, or that Alex and Billy tell people about Chris during the extortion, but Chris is clueless about Alex and Billy's duplicity and pays them anyway. It still looks conspiratorial in either case, but it trades upon the notion of secrecy in this instance being very ambiguous indeed. Yeah, so somebody pays up the extortion without realising that they were lying all along and, and um, told them straight away. 
Yep. Um, so they say, even if this example either gets ruled in as being secret and conspiratorial, our general point remains that there are going to be examples of what we really of what really do seem like conspiracies in which secrecy was a secondary consideration. We contend that serious consideration should be made to think of these as actual conspiracies rather than something which is conspiracy conspiracy like or conspiracy light. <laughs> nice. Nice turn mm. of phrase. And so then we come to section eight in conclusion. Um, where they basically, it, it seemed to me coming up to coming, uh, bringing up a, that particularist uh, viewpoint again, but particularism when it comes to secrecy, uh, they say, we find it to be a complex property of conspiracies and not even a consistent requirement of all conspiracies. It appears as though each conspiracy will necessitate that different secrets be kept from different actors. Once the decision to conspire has been reached and two or more people are sufficiently confident in the others to proceed, passive secrecy or an active cover-up may be required, but it may not. As events unfold, additional secretive uh, active disinformation may be required, or it may not. Once the goal is reached, secrecy must be maintained in some cases, while in other cases the co-conspirators must reveal the plot either in whole or in part. Um, and they, they uh, round things out by saying, We recognise that there are in fact two conclusions to draw from this, one strong, the other weak. The weak conclusion is that the secrecy involved in conspiring is multifaceted, and strangely enough, this is not talked about in the academic literature on conspiracy theories. The strong conclusion is this, secrecy is not necessary for something to be considered a conspiracy. And finally, the, the, the whole paper ends, uh, rounds out by saying, we would suggest that rejecting either conclusion is problematic. If we stipulate any unwarranted characteristic of conspiracy theory, for example secrecy, however understood, we have arbitrarily ruled out a multitude of actual conspiracies and a multitude of claims about them. Objections to these arguments are grounded in the a priori belief, which we have argued is, un is unjustified, that there is something inherently wrong with the conspiracy theory. Unwilling to abandon that assumption, a move is made to court off some claims, those that are perhaps most likely to stand up to scrutiny as not really conspiracy theories. We believe this move is illogical and indefensible. We hope that these arguments will motivate more careful consideration of the nature of conspiracy and the role of secrecy therein. Scholars and citizens alike, we believe, must examine more critically the concept and its use, and suppress what is usually an almost autonomic gag reflex. One final example of the complex relationship between conspiracy and secrecy, having ourselves engaged in the conspiracy of co-authoring this paper, which, although involving no active secrecy on our part, involved the open conspiracy of those by who, are, who are, by their own admission, monitoring international email traffic, our goal has been realised. As our plot entailed this outcome from the beginning, we are ready to reveal our conspiracy, which we hope few will find too sinister. Mm. Bit of fun at the end there. Yes. There you go, yep. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think like you said at the beginning, I don't find a lot to, to, to criticise with this paper so much. It's just an interesting, um, an interesting look at something that's perhaps been taken for granted a bit and uh, shown to be more complicated perhaps than people um, have first assumed. Yeah, that's, I actually forgot to do it, but I was going to look to see whether anybody has, yeah, because there's a sense in which this paper has raised a challenge mm. of, hey, we need to be thinking more about conspiracy theories and their relationship to secrecy, but also we just need to think more about secrecy, uh, uh, you know, on its own, independent of any discussion of, of conspiracy theories, although they, you know, they have this role to play in our analysis of conspiracy theories, and uh, not really sure. I feel like I should. Uh, Take a look and see whether anybody has raised, r r risen to the challenge, and and try to spell things out a little bit more. Yeah. Um, well, because I think they they make they make a good case for its its 
much more mm. complex than it seems on on the surface. Yes, well, I'll, I'll, I think I should be able to for the bonus episode for this week. Um, oh, good. Hook, uh, jack up another interview with with um, M. Dentith. Um, last time we talked mm. about one of the papers, I was able to have a bit of a chat afterwards. So maybe, maybe if uh, for, for our loyal patrons who listen to the bonus episode this week, I, I, I should be able to um, get get the word from the horse's mouth, as it were, if that's not unfair to M. Uh, as to whether or not they have had any sort of a response or, or pushback or criticism or what have you to this paper. So um, that's that's something to look forward to for the patrons for our bonus episode. But as, uh, as it comes to the main episode for this week, uh, I think we're pretty much at the end of it. Did you have any, any final thoughts on the paper? Yeah, just, uh, just actually, as we were sitting here, I decided to look in uh, Google Scholar, and it's been... It's been cited twenty times, so it's uh, so some people have have read it, um, and then, um, but I haven't. The page is still loading to see whether uh, whether all those twenty citations are 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 M and Marty citing themselves, <laughs> which uh, sometimes happens in academia, but uh, but it seems like at least some people have paid attention to the paper, uh, and that's a uh, good. Good to know. That's good. But yeah, I'd be curious to, mm. that would be a good thing to put into the bonus episode and, and uh, find out from M whether they think that the, there's been a sufficient uptake of the challenge that they've posed. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, well, as far as I know, it is still in, in Zhuhai in China, so um, more wrestling with time zones will ensue, but I'm sure we'll be able to get something something to say. But uh, but but there there is an important question here that, that we didn't mm. answer, which is... Back in that section on the biscuits and the oh, ghosts, yes. the, the 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 grammar or not the grammar, the nouns in that sentence were pretty interesting. It says, for example, imagine a scene in which a parent finds the cookie jar empty and charges a child covered in biscuit crumbs with the crime, which is interesting because it uses mm. both cookie and biscuit in the same sentence. So in New Zealand, is it called a cookie jar well, or is it called a biscuit? Uh, it's kind of both. It's interesting. Back back in my university days when I was doing linguistics, I did do a bit of a, uh, I did some research into how British and American terms get used in New Zealand because it seemed, but sort of originally, being a British colony, the, the sort of British English was the. The, the the dominant, but then as America became sort of the, the cultural force, the pop cultural force, and we were getting so much more American television and movies and music and what have you, sort of American terms started to come in. But the interesting thing was that usually it's not that we would swap the British term for the American term, it would be that we'd use both of them, but sort of in a, in a different way. So you get things like um, trousers and pants. In, in England, pants means underwear, whereas in America, pants is trousers in new zealand mm -hmm. pants has sort of become the general term but trousers has the implication of more formal like like you know business business wear or formal wear and so the same with biscuits and cookies i think biscuits is still the general term but cookies is very specifically like your chocolate chip cookie like a biscuit could be anything at all that that that, that comes in a packet that you know um whether it, whether it has fruit or chocolate on it or what anything like that whereas a cookie is generally sort of a big round thing that's sort of dough with stuff in it like chocolate chips so it's it's sort of it, it takes on levels of nuance anyway that's my that's my linguistics lecture yes. for the day yeah and i kind of remember one of the years that i lived in in britain as well it was because it's not only the biscuit versus cookie but there's also the tin versus 
jar because it's clearly a cookie oh, jar. Yes, it's always a cookie jar. Cookies. Yeah. Yes, but then it's, it's a biscuit tin, tin mm. in 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 Britain. Uh, one is where it's stored, and the other is what you bought it in. So, oh, right. um, uh, mm. but uh, I think it has something more to do with the fact that in America we have lousy containers uh, in the stores, so that you know you you buy it in plastic and you take it out of the plastic and you put it into a, a nice jar uh, or you cook it and you put it into a nice mm. jar. Uh, the idea that, that somebody would actually spend the money to create an actual tin, which is the thing that you bought it in. And then it could be used as an actual dispenser as well. Uh, that's uh, that seems to be beyond uh, what American uh, uh, capitalism is capable of producing. Yes. Yes. I don't know, but yes. So that's, that's that. That's transatlantic linguistics for you. Um, no, and yes. that's no secret no, there. No, none whatsoever. So I think we've come to the end of an episode. Uh, I so think I so. think I'll I'll just do do my usual usual wacky thing and and just say goodbye. Yes. Well, totally pip to you as Dead. well. <laughs>